wisdom eccentrics. Rumours of realisation, as told by Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche, with additional tales of the unexpected, by Natrang Rinpoche. Introduction, and that's the way of it. Wisdom Eccentrics, the title of this book, is the coinage of Dungse Trini Norbu Rinpoche. I've always appreciated the way the term describes my most revered lamas. This book is a journey woven from stories. It's only partially linear and lacks many events that would categorise it as an autobiography or even a memoir. It's a pastiche of stories rather than a series of connected events and I've left much to be inferred. My main intention in writing was to remember my lama Kyabje Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche, and to make him known to others. He related a fascinating series of stories back in the 70s and imparted a great deal through the telling. Transmission occurred on many occasions throughout our time together and at other times with other lamas. I have not pinpointed these moments for various reasons the most important being that transmission is both extraordinary and ordinary. It cannot be described without diminishing or aggrandizing the experience, and I have no interest in either. Suffice it to say that there may be more to this than meets the eye. Part one, now you something say, is a series of preambles that take me to Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche's door. It gives a basic background for understanding what follows. It's not a technical introduction to Vajrayana Buddhism. It does cover some important ground that is essential to understanding the stories and possibly also the author. These stories or wisdom lays are reflective of the unusual style in which they were conveyed to me by Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. But they're recounted according to my own linguistic and literary appreciation. That's what Rinpoche advised. They are narrated according to the cant of an eccentric Englishman, a former blues musician and art student. Part two. The Attack Without Mercy takes you into the stories of Tibetan lamas told by Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. These stories have been told before, well, most of them. I don't pretend to make a finer job of the telling than others have made, simply a different job. It's all in the way of telling and style of language. And that's the way of it as storyteller Shivam O'Brien often concluded his Irish legends of Finn McCool. I can still see Shivam sitting like a figure of legend himself in the Iron Age roundhouse he built on a hillside in North Wales. I spent many an evening in the summers of the early 90s listening to his wonderful tales. The stories presented here 
also tell the story of my relationship with Rinpoche as it developed and as I was irredeemably changed by the experience. The transmogrification of a Tom Fool into some kind of Tom Bombadil was as harrowing to the author as it is likely to be comical to the reader. Part 3. This is Strange Mainly concerns Kordong Terchen Tulku Chimirigsin Rinpoche and the stories are quite personal, sometimes entirely bizarre. Jimmy Rigson Rinpoche was many times larger than life and those he attracted as students were also somewhat larger than life. I've changed the names of the characters apart from Jimmy Rigson Rinpoche in order to avoid ruffling anyone's feathers. My intention is to portray a gestalt, not to malign anyone. Aside from accounts concerning Chimi Rigsin Rinpoche, I have a few of my own stories to tell, concerning my time in the Himalayas and other places. These stories provide a picture, albeit a highly subjective one, of how Buddhism has been misunderstood in the West. I felt obliged to say something on this subject as Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche always emphasised that Tibetan culture and Vajrayana were not necessarily the same. I would point out in similar vein that Buddhism and psychotherapy are not, in some instances, even remotely similar. Wisdom eccentrics are probably as popular as they ever were as persons who appear on the printed page. But unlike in old Tibet, where they were accurately understood, the West tends to shroud them in all manner of misconceptions. Part 4. Tales from Somewhere Beyond Time sees me reunited with Kyabje Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and introduces Kandro Dechen, my wife, and Sangyun. It takes the history up to the passing and Paranirvana of Rinpoche. There were stories here too, but they are not followed by interrogation as were the previous stories. This part of the book is more a series of vignettes of personality display and time spent with Rinpoche and Jomo Sampel in Yanglisha and Boda in the Kathmandu Valley in Nepal. Part 5 The Portal of Potency Describing the Indescribable is a collection of material that was too technical in terms of Vajrayana terminology and Vajrayana theory to include in Part 2. A brief autobiography of Rinpoche a listing of 21 of the 25 female disciples of Padmasambhava and Yeshit Sogyal, and a discussion relating to the Gurkha Changla Day. This material will mainly be of interest to those who have studied Vajrayana Buddhism within the Nyingma tradition and who have a particular interest in the yogic wing of that tradition. Part 1 
now you something say. Kyabje Kunzangdoje Rinpoche told me, Vajrayana is not ordinary, and so ordinary language cannot be used. Vajrayana is the poetry of existence beyond space and time. Vajrayana is every art, and you must be practising every art. If you do not practise every art, how can you know the elements? And if you do not know the elements, how can you know the essence of the elements and open your eyes to great vision? Art has therefore been my life in every sense as far as I can make that possible. This book is a symbol of my gratitude to Rinpoche for making that obvious to me. When I taught alongside Chimmy Rigsin Rinpoche in Frankfurt, Germany, he'd sometimes turn round to me at the most unlikely times and say, now you something say for an hour. So I'd launch into an aspect within the general subject matter on which Rinpoche was teaching. Once I happened to conclude five minutes early and Rinpoche said, still five minutes coming. So I'd launch in again without a moment to reflect. To look at this question from another perspective, they sick him here, they seek him there, they seek young Chogyam everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That damned, accursed ne'er-do-well. Now I something say, for some hundred thousand words or more. Chapter 1. The Language of the Lays Every Lama with whom I've studied has been a raconteur. It's an integral aspect of the role. This book describes the evolution of my experience in that role. You'll either excuse my language or not, but I've decided to write in the vernacular. I'm going to write as if I were speaking personally with friends or students. It'll give you an idea of the person who's writing and how he sees the world. The experience I bring to relating these lays comes from a lifetime's committed involvement with Nyingma Vajrayana Buddhism. That experience is what it is, neither elevated nor completely demented, neither realised nor too viciously deranged. My writing style is also what it is, neither eloquently polished nor linguistically stunted, neither academically erudite nor illiterate. I'm informed by the language of my times and by the literature I've read, from Ted Hughes and Allen Ginsberg back to Shakespeare and Chaucer. I'm influenced by having a self-made man as a father he was the youngest son of an elderly father who lacked the resources to set him up in life, 
a pattern continued with my father's own sons. My father thus began his working life at 14 as a docker in Chatham, Kent. After a year, he misrepresented his age and joined the army as a private soldier. He was made up to the rank of major after obtaining engineering qualifications. He did well for himself in the army, but he was never socially accepted by other officers. He was a wartime major. Social estrangement and strain of work retired him with a heart condition in 1952. He found himself in Aldershot, home of the British Army, where he secured a civilian post as a quantity surveyor attached to the Ministry of Works. His name was Jesse Ernest. Jesse after Jesse James and Ernest after the importance of being Ernest. His father, Charles Matthew, was a true Victorian working-class gentleman and veteran of the Boer War. His mother, Elizabeth Mary, was a sprightly lass brought up to the farming life. They were both well-read in spite of meagre circumstances and the arts were not foreign to them. My father took dictionaries to bed for bedtime reading and developed the habit of learning a new word every week. He'd then use the word in conversation each day until it became a normal part of his vocabulary. Manners maketh man, he used to say, and speech maketh the gentleman. My mother, Renata Maria Frieda Louisa Schubert, was born when her father was 50 and strangely enough, I followed suit, my father being born in 1902 and my appearing in 1952. She was the grandniece of Franz Schubert. I learnt from her that kindness makes you what you are, but she never made a saying out of it. That was simply how she was. She was an intelligent, highly educated and cultured woman who could have married a man from a similar background if it hadn't been for the war. Her family was horribly reduced in circumstances by her parents' opposition to Hitler. Her brother, Bernd, along with others in the Brandenburg Company, was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. The plot was discovered and the whole company was sent to the Russian front, where he and all his company died on 19th of December 1943. Her mother had to escape to Denmark till the war ended, as she'd been implicated due to the help she'd given to Jewish families. My mother and her brother Bernd had telepathic communication. They used to play a game where she'd stare into his eyes and know what card he had picked from a deck. When Bernd died, my mother fell unconscious and had cuts and bruises where her brother had wounds. My grandmother, on my mother's side, had premonitions which always proved true. 
I believe this because neither lady was given to flights of fancy. My mother only mentioned it when I started talking about Tibet. She mentioned it only the once, but it seeded with me the idea that there really is more to the world than meets the eye. There are spiritual types who'll tell you all kinds of nonsense, but my mother was distinctly not one of those. Apart from this one account, she was entirely down to earth on all matters. When it comes to me, I can tell any card from a pack as long as I'm looking straight at it. I can even hit them at 20 yards with a 0.38 wad cutter. Like my mother, I'm not particularly given to flights of fancy. That has not always made life easy. At art school, one in every two girls was designing her own tarot cards. Astrology underpinned the age of Aquarius, and that was the death of conversation as far as I was concerned. I'm not that fond of spiritual seekers. Not that I allow that to prejudice me toward people with whom I have no acquaintance. I always give people the benefit of the doubt, but then spiritual seekers often take a dislike to me. It thus all works out one way or another, and I wish everyone extremely well. What would the world be without variety? The influence of both my parents will probably be apparent in terms of how the lays in this book emerge. Throughout my childhood, my father read to the family, my mother, brother and myself. He also reminisced about his wartime experiences in China and India. He was never in Tibet, although he came fairly close. My father fancied himself as something of a raconteur, and if something of his admiration of the Victorian novel comes through, then I trust I may be forgiven. Tibetans always want to know about your family, and so I've told you, and in that way a tradition is continued. Although it may be offensive to those who prefer their Tibetan stories expressed in archaic honorifics, I can't pretend that Bob Dylan, The Beatles, beat poetry, Roger McGough, Sylvia Plath or Ted Hughes were not important to me. I'd regard it as ungrateful to forget the pints of ginger beer I drank as an art student, talking with Adrian Henry after his visit to the Hatchmill Annex of Farnham Art School. I'd not feel genuine if I put aside the impact of the blues lyrics I heard in the Garden of the Bush Hotel, where Mike Cooper made his national resophonic tricone steel guitar sing and cry. The words and deeds of Tibetan yogis and yoginis exist in the same world as the world of John Milton and Milton Keynes, William Blake and Willie Dixon, Franz Schubert and Frank Zappa, William Shakespeare and William Carlos Williams. For anyone who wants access to the teachings of wisdom eccentrics, it's found within the world we know. Trying to find it in a land of snows you may never see is impractical. 
Even to look to India for wisdom eccentrics is no longer as possible as it was in the 1970s. Those days are more or less gone. The non-dual inspiration, however, remains, often in unexpected places, such as upstate New York or the Santa Cruz Mountains. My own sense of inspiration has always been ignited by the bridges I've found between the land of snows and the green and pleasant land of Blake, the wild llamas of Gollock and the wild west. The wisdom eccentrics of these lays discovered the nature of mind as human beings. The lineage of wisdom eccentrics, therefore, is represented by a wide range of personalities as colourful and disconcerting as Boudicca and Bo Diddley, Lady Godiva and Noel Coward, John Lennon and John Martin, Mae West and Oscar Wilde. I've made no attempt to reproduce a medieval world in these wisdom lays or to furnish them with a timbre of piety or etheric orientalism. The important aspects are exactly those which were presented to me, but I've attempted to give them a contemporary literary narrative quality. That's what Rinpoche instructed me to do. Tell these stories to your students. Make a book, but tell the stories in the language of the West so that people will enjoy them and understand them. These are not just stories from the past. They are stories for practitioners everywhere in all times. <laughs>